Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and co-parents of all ages, this podcast is for you. Introducing in the center ring the amicable divorce expert, Judith Weigel. Because this is a divorce podcast, we're talking about relationships, right? We're talking about resolving the marriage and moving into either singlehood, another relationship, or a co-parenting relationship. But what is the one relationship that we all have that doesn't end until the day we die and maybe a little after that? Yes, you would be right if you said it's our relationship to money. That's what we're going to talk about today with Kaki Purdue. No, she doesn't make chickens. She makes people really happy when as a CPA and a certified financial planner, she works with people in regards to their portfolios. But I thought Kaki, and first of all, Kaki, thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here with you. Oh, this is going to be fun. Um, so we're going to talk about people's relationship to money because Kaki, when you work with people planning their financial lives, you get to learn about people's relationship to money whether it's healthy, it's not healthy, whether it's realistic, it's not realistic. Is that not true? That is that is true. And you get to know how what people's values are and how that impacts how they spend money. Okay, great. I love that you said values because I want to focus in on our relationship to money and how it shows itself in a divorce particularly in the willingness to divide assets and most importantly to the resistance around child support and spousal support slash alimony. This is when in a divorce situation, we really get to see what our and our spouse's relationship to money is. And so Kaki, when you work with people and planning their financial futures, you, you must get a lot of people going through divorce and that's a real upending of money and where to go with it. Do, do you have divorced people as well? Yes, definitely. I work with people that are in all stages of divorce, thinking about it during divorce and post-divorce. When you are working with people who are thinking about it, what is their biggest fear in regards to money as they're approaching the initiation of their divorce? It's twofold. I would say first, people are concerned with, can I support myself financially when it's just me? People definitely think about that. They think about, can I support my children when it's just me? Those are the two big financial decisions, which is the the right now. If I if I get divorced next month, am I going to be able to support a household for my family? And then later on comes the uh oh, now what am I gonna do about retirement? Because the marital combined assets were a lot larger, higher than maybe 
I'm going to walk away with in divorce. So that's kind of the secondary thought. Yeah. And do you have anybody sharing their concerns, whether they're the payors or the recipients in regards to child support and spousal support? Yes. And I've seen it. I've worked with both sides of the coin. So I've worked with a man who is paying child support happily and also willing to throw in an additional thousand dollars a month where needed because he still loves his wife and his children, of course, but he does, he still loves his wife and is, and is happy to throw in additional money to support her and support their family. And then I have another client that her, her husband was supposed to start paying child support back in August and has not made a payment yet. So she's going to have to, you know, use the law and and the court system to try and force that. In order to understand the profile of the person we're dealing with in the divorce and then to understand ourselves as well, I, I wanted to start just having you discuss a little bit of background stuff about people and their relationship to money. So here's my first question. What forms people's emotional attachment to money? So as we know, there's almost nothing that we do in life that is completely void of emotions. We have emotions all day long, whether we are aware of them or not. And in fact, according to the Emotional Intelligence 2.0 book, only 36 people, 36% of people that they tested can accurately identify emotions as they happen. So if you cannot accurately identify the emotion that you are feeling in the moment, then it's going to be challenging to connect the emotions you feel to the money you spend, right? Mm-hmm. And there are um, six basic emotions, happy, sad, anger, fear, shame, and pride. Okay. And at any given time, you sometimes we might confuse sad with shame, or we might confuse sad with fear. We might confuse happy with pride. We could confuse shame and anger. And under, so, so it, it takes some practice and some looking internally to first recognize and name the primary emotions that we feel. And I think that that step is so important and so often overlooked when it comes to finances and money. And just so that, and, and so that our audience knows, you mentioned at the beginning, I am a CPA and a certified financial planner, which those two skill sets are not often um, linked or, or um, associated with recognizing and emotions and talking about emotions with money. But it's so important to have both the 
technical background of helping people get things right within the, you know, doing things in a tax efficient way and, and doing things and, um, uh, you know, to, to maximize investments according to risk and also understanding that we're people and we're human beings and we're not these like rational robots making decisions without how understanding how we feel. Right. And divorce is all about feeling. It, it That's is. right. And, and so I will see people, like you mentioned, a range. I will see people that are uh, having no issues with dividing assets and paying child support and also spousal support slash alimony. And then I have people that parse out every single penny and want to know why I have to do this. Why can't we just get divorced? Why, 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 why? And sometimes the answer is obvious because your wife has never worked. You've been married 20 years. Um, even if she wanted to get a job, what is she going to get without training? There are viable reasons why spousal support definitely and then child support is on the table. But you know, I have to sift through these conversations and kind of get an assessment of the person so that I know the words to choose, so that I know how to communicate. The only thing we're going to communicate, which is it's the law and your kids need you and your wife who has worked for 20 years needs you too. It seems to be obvious, but yet it's not. Emotions have no logic. So when I'm talking to somebody like that, I know I just can't go straight logic. So I have to talk in metaphor. I have to maybe reverse the situation and say, well, maybe if if, if the situation was reversed and you are the one needing support, um, what would be your reaction? So there's a number of different ways, but you do this all day long. It's just the money piece. So here's my next question. What are the ways in which money defines us? Do we have a money type? Because I think I read that in your materials, didn't I? Yes, you did. You did. Um, we do. We do kind of all have a unique money type. And money, our emotions towards money and the way we treat money is often tied back to our early money story. Think about for a second, what is your earliest memory of money? And then think about, huh, who managed the money in your household when you were growing up? Did you grow up rich? Did you grow up feeling like, you, the, the, did you grow up where, in, a, in a house where the lights were turned off because sometimes you couldn't pay the power bill? And, and so the, your money origin goes back to a very early age. How you experience money then is going to impact how you feel about money and how you act towards money as an adult. So let's, let's look at some examples. Sometimes people will view money through the lens of control. Somebody, in this case, you could have somebody that's a spender or somebody that's a saver. In each case, perhaps when they were growing up, they were told, oh no, you cannot have that because we cannot afford it. 
And as an adult, they turn the tables and say, I am going to control my money story. And so I'm controlling my money story by choosing to spend. These people are sometimes the life of the party. They have a great time. They honestly, spenders are great to have as really good friends, right? Because they they are going to pick up the bill. They are always thinking of fun things to do. Money is not in their vocabulary. A budget is not in their vocabulary because they are exercising control over their money and they are spending it. The saver, on the other hand, comes from control. They are choosing to not to spend their money because they remember what it was like not to be able to pay the electric bill growing up. And there's no way that they are going to be in that position again as an adult. So they are saving every penny they have and they take great joy and pride in in how much they have in their investments and how much they have in their bank account. They are not spending unnecessarily. And then you also have a money maker, which is somebody that says, I can spend as much as I want because I am in control. I can I can go out and make more money at any time. I can always make more money. Oh, I so want to be that person. Sorry about <laughs> that. I love that person, that ability. And before you go on, there was a um a well-known merchant here in town that had two or three exclusive retail shops, very well known. My This office, before I bought the company, did two of his three divorces. And here's what he said. Give her whatever she wants. I can always make more money. Yes. 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 And it's interesting because that person, they may also have a boom and bust money story where they are bringing in money, bringing in money, and then they're spending it and spending it and spending it. They so, And they can always make more money. And and so they maybe perhaps have not saved quite as much as they should have, but they can always bring in more money. But that's generally, you know, in all three of those money types, people are coming from the perspective of, I can control my money story. That's kind of the theme for those. Okay, so then... um the way in which money affects you. So given everything that you've just said, um, it's time to really talk about money in the divorce with me or another professional that you've hired. We've looked at all the disclosure forms. We've, you know, we uh, looked at where the assets and debts were. We looked at uh, what child support and spousal support would be. And now we see the reins tightening and tightening. And we see... Uh, why did you valet park there for $15 as opposed to parking at a, at, at a meter on the street? And, and I want to help people in this episode who are, who are married to somebody who is really, uh, holding the reins on the money. You can't get that person to spend. And by the way, let's not divide the assets. You take what you have and I'll take what I have. It doesn't matter that I have more than you. Let's just take what we each have. It's fear. Let's look at the range of uh, emotions that person could be feeling because what I really want to do is get the person who's not that person 
to be understanding and to figure out how do you deal with a person who won't give it up. Yeah, and and then you know, at some point you have to sort of say, okay, I'm going to take I'm going to take a deep breath and count to 10 first to reset. Yep. And there's many times during a divorce that you need to take that deep breath and count to 10. Because the reality is there's so many times that we have situations that are out of our control that we so and we ask ourselves, what can we control? And if if the part the the soon to be ex of the ex is saying, I'll just take my share and you take yours and we'll part ways, or I don't think I really need to pay child support. You know, if 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 that if your client is the the person who is you know whose spouse ex spouse is saying those things, then we say, okay, what what kind of things do we control? Well, we do control that you can hire a lawyer. You know, we can work with an attorney and work right. with a divorce coach. And we can, and here's what the law says. And we are going to attempt to, you know, rectify this using the law. That's why the law is there. True. But also saying to ourselves, their behavior is out of our hands. We cannot control their behavior. We also cannot control the way that they feel about money. There's not much that we can do to to change that. So we need to focus on our sphere of influence and our sphere of control and the things that we can influence and the things that we can't control. And I think it's very important to, to do that. Right. So, okay. So here's a situation that, that happens frequently. Uh, you'll have people on two different spectrums in, in the way they relate to money. And uh, the one who makes more money is the one that simply doesn't want to divide it, needs all these different reasons why child support exists and, uh, you know, giving up spousal support, if possible, is one of the ways uh, the recipient says, okay, fine, let's just take this off the table, especially if they can provide for themselves. But then you get people who say, okay, fine. I realize it's the law. Okay, I'll do this. Divorce is over. And then they choose not to do it. Hmm. And so I don't know about other states, but I know in the state of California, uh, the family court system cannot go after people. They're not set up to do that. They're only set up to establish rulings initially. But if you want enforcement on child support, you have to go to child support services. And they are the enforcement arm. So for people in California and look in your state, if you have a child support services arm that can really get involved and help you secure child support on a monthly basis without arguing, do it because they're generally free and will be very helpful. But I think it's helpful, Khaki, in general to say, wait a minute. I mean, this is a bigger issue than meets the eye. And like you said, our emotional connection to money started when we were younger. Either we grew up very poor or middle class or very wealthy. And it seems to be on the wealthy end and the poor end, 
those are very difficult ends for different reasons. Like you really don't understand money even when you're super rich because it's not an issue. It's just there. It's always just there. And then when you go off on your own, you're like a lost little lamb. You don't really have a relationship to money other than, well, wait a minute, it was always there. That's right. That's right. And then, but growing up poor is a whole different story. So you either excel in making money because you never want to live like that ever again, or this makes you hang on to money and keeps you in a, um, uh, what's the headspace uh, it, it depleted? Um, a scarcity mindset. Thank you, a scarcity. Thank you, mm-hmm. a scarcity mindset. Can you speak to that a little bit? What do you do when you have clients that have a scarcity mindset? Right, so a scarcity mindset is driven by what emotion? Fear. It's driven by fear. I'm afraid of going back to that has, that spot that I was in before, that spot where the electricity got turned off. And, and also perhaps the scarcity mindset is the thought of, uh, it's, it's limiting and it's, it's, well, I'm only going to ever be able to make this amount and I have to save every penny. So getting, transitioning out of the fear mindset involves adding an element of trust sometimes. And that can come from teaching somebody about investments. Somebody might say, well, I'm afraid of investing in the stock market because I saw my parents lose a lot of money in 1987 or in 2008 or, you know, name that year where the stock market was bad. God, you just got those years, right? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. And therefore, I am only going to keep my money in a safe savings account where with a CD at my local bank. And so teaching somebody about the um, stock market, teaching them about investing, teaching them about having a diversified portfolio and helping do that in a non-threatening way can help build trust with their relationship with money and investing so that then they can learn how money can grow and help them to have a safer future. That person also is going to need a healthy emergency savings. They, for, you know, experts say, oh, you might need a three to six month emergency savings or maybe all the way up to a 12 month emergency savings. And and somebody that's coming from the scarcity mindset might perhaps be better off with closer to a 12 month because that's what they need to feel safe. Mm. And if we can get them into a safe mode, then they are going to be more likely to be open to trusting the good things in the future. And, you know, Judith, it's funny, going back to what you were saying about how, what do you, what do, you do with somebody where the ex-spouse won't pay the child support? If you are in the middle of the divorce proceeding and you know your partner's tendency is going to be to hold on to all of the money, you know that ahead of time. Most of the time, wives or husbands, it can go either way. They know, they know their partner is going to want to hold on to all of that money. And I had a case recently where the 
spouses had discussed an agreement that would provide um, money transfer. They, they was, it was basically like this. It was that, okay, I'm going to pay you more money out of my 401k now. And then I don't have to pay you child support for the next 10 years. And we're done. We're walking away clean and free. And the person felt like they were getting a win because they didn't have to pay child support. And the other person felt like they were getting a win because they had a feeling, oh, they're never going to pay child support. I'll just take the money. And money and money in hand is much better than money that may or may not be coming in over the next 10 years in the form of child support. And so if you can, if you can find those types of solutions ahead of time before the divorce is final, then that again, going back to our centers of control and things that we influence, that's something that we can control and we can try and write that into the divorce decree uh, to, so that we can prevent the having to go to court and, and fight. You know, um, that's an excellent suggestion, Kaki. I ran into that in, in regards to spousal support some years ago where um, people started wanting to make more lump sums. Um, you know, let's look at what uh, the monthly slash yearly slash 10 years of spousal support I'm obligated to pay, whatever. Um, and with the lump sum, you can negotiate. You know, mm-hmm. you don't pay exactly what it would equal for 10 years because what you can do with that lump sum is a lot. So, you know, a few things per your suggestion. You don't have to worry about is it going to come in or not each month. So you get rid of that. I never thought to do it with child support, always with spousal. Uh, maybe because children's needs change so so much sometimes, depending if you have maybe a child in ill health, you never know what's coming around the corner for that. But um, yeah, because you can do a lot more with the lump sum. You could actually invest it. And you then, can, you can right, invest it. And then draw from it on a monthly basis as you, you need to provide for your child or or for yourself. That's right. That's right. Um, it's, you know, it's a solution. You Sometimes you just have to get creative with the types of solutions given the personalities that you know that you're dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. So, yes, you can always use the law. You can always have a hearing. You know, the judge will do all of this for you. People really do resist having that done. Listen, I would resist going to court. I hate court. I literally hate court. Um, but when people are in this situation where one person has a scarcity mindset or, you know, I don't even want to use the word selfish because that sounds judgmental and I certainly don't want to come from that because I do know that we don't have a choice in our early years about the influences we have that come into our heads and that shape us. I, I guess I really just want people to be really aware that when you are married to somebody who never shared financial information with you and always wanted to know, well, why do you want to know that? That's control, right? 
That is, it's a form of control. Mm-hmm. But it's control born of fear. It's control born of maybe scarcity experience. It's 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 fear born of something. Mm-hmm. And do, do you find that if people can uncover where that fear is coming from, not the person themselves going through that, but the other spouse who has to negotiate, if they can understand where that scarcity mindset came from or that control came from. Um, maybe it's, you know, huge narcissism. And I mean, that's an uphill battle unto itself. Do we, what are the choices? Let it go. Just walk away with whatever and call it a day. Try and address the fear. Do you ever see people successful addressing their spouse's fear over money to help them relax a little bit as they're giving it up. Right, right. Well, you know, here's the thing. I've I've heard um I've heard it said before that you can really tell like if if people come to couples counseling, if they try couples counseling prior to divorce and then you have a private conversation about splitting assets. You really know that somebody's ready for divorce when they are like, I don't care what it costs. I'm getting out of this. And with some, you know, you mentioned a narcissistic behavior or narcissistic tendency, you know, with after being married to somebody in that particular instance, they may get to the end of their rope and say, Listen, my well-being and creating an environment for me that is safe, where I'm not feeling emotional abuse or or, um, verbal abuse or financial abuse, because it could be any you know any of those or physical abuse. I need to create a safe environment for myself, and sometimes that does include saying I am ready to walk away and begin anew. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take whatever I can from this divorce, but it's best for me to move forward and start a new path towards forgiveness and new life and to drop the emotional baggage of fear or shame or anger and say, I'm, I'm moving forward. Because the biggest internal obstacles to really building wealth are going to be shame and fear. And, and then you can move forward on a new path. There's no, nothing that says you can't start over at 40 or 50 or 60 or 70. You can do, you know, you can start over. It's so nice where you say that. Yeah. And, and then the other thing is, you know, some, but sometimes I do see people that are in a marriage, they're still in the marriage and, the one spouse doesn't want to talk about money. And when you get them into a, into a conversation with somebody like myself, that's an outsider, but an expert in the subject matter, we find out that, well, it may not be that they were trying to be secretive about money, but they thought they were being helpful to their spouse by shielding them from having to carry the stress of the financial burden of the household. And, they were very, you know, they were secretive with the money. They didn't want the spouse to know about the financial troubles. They were trying to carry that burden all on their own shoulders. And by trying to shield their spouse from the financial burden, 
you know, ironically, it created more financial stress on the spouse because they, the other spouse, because they didn't know, they didn't know, didn't have an understanding. And, and that could be part of it as well. They could be thinking they're doing you a favor by shielding you from having to, you know, manage the, the financial stress of the family. You couldn't be more right. I just, as you were talking, I flashed back on a couple some years ago that I, that I worked with and she knew they were a little in debt. No clue the extent of the debt until we did the disclosure forms. And I looked at his debt and I just said, look, I apologize ahead of time if you feel I'm speaking out of line. I do not mean to do that. But as I'm looking at this and you have two children and I'm looking at what your child and spousal support obligations are, you're buried. Have you considered bankruptcy? And I do believe he he didn't say it. So I could be wrong. I don't think I'm wrong. I almost think it was his culture and religion, shame, that wouldn't allow him to declare bankruptcy. I have no idea what they're doing right now. I know I've gotten several calls from the wife over the last few years. And I just said, you have to go to child support services. I can't do a thing for you. I mean, this is so far gone. And that was the most extreme situation when I saw that even if you paid the interest charges on the 30 debt instruments, you're homeless. You have no money left over for the rent. How are you? Right. How are you surviving? Yeah. And it's, and you know, it's, it's very important to have those candid conversations and to be honest and say, listen, from my perspective, that, you know, this, you may not be able to come back from this. Bankruptcy may be the only alternative for you. And once you file bankruptcy, though, here's where that it doesn't end there. In order not to repeat that, now you need counseling. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. What were you going to say? Did I interrupt you? No, no. Uh, but you're right. The shame, shame is a tremendous barrier. And, and we see shame with people, you know, if, you know, maybe they have some credit card debt and not in a divorce situation, but just maybe, maybe they just have some credit card debt. It's very important to say out loud, yeah, I feel shameful about this and to acknowledge that shame. Because once you acknowledge it, then you can push it aside and begin to think of solutions. Yes. And we have to become solution oriented in order to move past, in order to take care of credit card debt and then to figure out how to stay out of credit card debt in the future. And, and we need to be solution oriented you know, when you're, when you're guiding somebody through divorce or how, what kind of solutions are there here for us to be able to move forward? Because the ultimate goal is to create a path forward for that person beginning a new chapter of their life. And we want, you know, you want somebody to be successful as they're starting off on that new chapter. Absolutely. I love that you said solution-based because that all of a sudden becomes a practical uh, activity rooted in positivity. It's a yes. practical activity rooted in positivity 
um, that you are solution-based. So, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Dr. Brene Brown, one of my heroes, who talks about shame and vulnerability. Um, and once you express that shame, it's like the weight of the world is lifted from your shoulders. Mm-hmm. And what I would like to share with everybody listening is I think money is the toughest relationship at all, of all. I mean, yes, marriage is tough, but money is a relationship we have personally, regardless of whether we're married or not. And it certainly comes to bear once we get married, because now we have to express ourselves financially with another person you really have to share your debt. I mean, that's a big conversation going into a marriage, isn't it? Sharing the debt. And I guess also sharing whatever wealth you've amassed. And that takes trust. You used that word trust, which I loved in this conversation. That mm-hmm. takes trust to say that. And I've seen a lot of people say, Uh, at the beginning of their marriage, well, I'll take care of that debt. It's usually the student loan debt or the credit card debt. I'll take care of that. Then we can start fresh. No, you're starting fresh for this minute, but you're not, that other person who had the debt isn't starting fresh. They need education. They need a whole different headspace, a whole different outlook on money and a relationship. And so what would you, would you suggest twofold, putting words in your mouth? Would you suggest they come to somebody like you that can really do money education with them and then possibly a therapist that can unwrap the emotion? How would you approach somebody who says, I have a lot of shame, I haven't handled money well at all. I want to be solution-based. What do I do, Kaki? Well, you nailed it. They, they may need, they need, may need both. Um, therapy can be tremendously helpful. Helps you work through the emotions you didn't realize were there. Helps you think about new paths forward and how your action, how you can change and control your actions moving forward. Working with a professional such as myself can help you with the education of under, practical education of understanding okay this is this is how a this is how somebody that's sophisticated with money would approach this problem or this approach this friction and within a marriage you can have a couple that they both earn a high income that neither one of them has any debt that they're both saving for retirement on paper they're doing everything right financially and oh by the way they love each other and they're happy And yet they also still have friction over conversations about money. They disagree on how much money should be spent on vacation. They disagree on how much money should be spent on private education versus public education for their school children. They disagree on should we pay for our children's car insurance or should our children have to have some skin in the game? And, and so helping helping them work through those conversations together and understand their their each individual point of view. And then most importantly, creating a joint shared vision of money together. That can, that can be very valuable because it just, it just provides a platform, a safe space to talk about money without shame 
and with openness and with positivity and creating a, you know, as I said, a joint shared vision that can be very valuable. That's a great idea, by the way, the joint shared vision. Because, well, you really do need it when you're married. You are operating as a team and the team is stronger when the vision is shared over whatever. But since we're talking about money. Um, and yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And if there's a point of contention that I feel like we should pay for our children's car insurance and my husband says, oh, no way. That's too expensive. Our 17-year-old son needs to pay for that himself. You know, <laughs> you can come together and come up with some kind of compromise. Yeah. You can create some kind of joint rule around that. But, you know, having an open conversation and understanding and listening to each other's point of view is is very important in that conversation. You know, you <laughs> loved everything you said, but you said something that I would kind of like to end with. And I've really not talked about this before. And that is educating your children about money. So skin in the game. Okay, you have a 17-year-old. They're still in high school, but they just got their driver's license. Now, of course, you want to keep them safe, but they have to learn to, I mean, they have to take the car out. They have to drive. I watch people paying who have the means, paying for everything for their children through college and after college. When does it end? So, <laughs> I mean, I look at it and say, well, you know, great that you have all this money. Okay, this is cool. But when does it when does it end supporting your kids? And when you said, let's come up with a solution that we a compromise with the example of car insurance, that parents taking part responsibility, children taking another part, that starts educating them about what it takes to drive a car. Yes, yes. And with, you know, children and with teaching children about money, the sooner you can get them a bank account, the better. The sooner you can give them some type of autonomy over their own spending, enough money that allows them to do what they want to do that you as a parent are like, I don't really want to pay for that anymore. But, but, you know, not so much that they can do anything and everything with that money. You want to teach them a little bit about scarcity, a little bit about making choices. And then ask, I always ask, well, parents, what is your goal for your children? Do you want them to become independent, successful adults that can manage their own financial world? Or do you want them to be dependent on you for their whole life? And they may have so much money that they say, well, uh, it doesn't, they have a trust fund. I want them to be taken care of for their whole life. And if that's the case, then that's, that's their goal. That's their values. And we can, we can make that happen if they have the funds available. But if they say to me, oh no, I want my children to learn financial independence and to, to be fully launched and to be successful working adults that can, you know, depend on themselves. Well, then, then we need to teach them along the way and we need to give them the opportunity to occasionally make mistakes, but, the, but to be there to help guide them. And part of that is, you know, getting them a bank account as early as possible and, and allowing them to learn the value of a dollar. 
Absolutely. So they won't have any fear or shame if they overspend because they just didn't get it or not have fear over having to earn money because what you referenced earlier in this discussion, 1987, 2008, how many people lost everything? Not their fault. But how many people lost everything, their homes, their bank accounts, um, the 401ks in 2008, along with the homes, it, it was horrible. And so you could have money now, but, you know, people who have had a hundred million or so have lost it. Yeah, it's happened. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. so you can't be that secure that this money will be always be around if it's not managed properly. Yeah, yeah. And right? That's, that is correct. Okay, so before we leave this conversation, do you have any programs you want to announce, any workshops, any books? Uh, What would you like to leave people with uh, in terms of how you can help them? I would say, well, if you are interested in learning more about personal finance, I also host a podcast called Look Both Ways Financial. It's a Q&A format and it's approachable. It's for everybody. And my company name, my, my website is www.lookbothwaysfinancial.com. And I always say that I'm on a mission to help people feel safe, strong, and secure managing their own money. And that includes a lot of financial education. But my the podcast and my website is the best way to find out more about how I can help you and how, how Look Both Ways Financial can help you. You know, I'm so sorry I was remiss in even saying you were also a podcast host because when I was reading that, I said, what a cool name. <laughs> both ways. How did you come up with that name? My dad taught me driver's ed and he would say we were sitting at a red light and he would say, now khaki, when the light turns green, you do not go. You still need to look both ways. And and I so that, you know, I was thinking about a name for my company and I said, oh, I know it. Look both ways, financial. The other thing he said, he would say is, you may have the right of way, but it does not matter if you are dead. There is a thing as being dead right. Don't be dead right. Wow. He has kind of a, he has kind of a dark sense of humor. So, but I thought, I always remember, even if I have the right of way, it doesn't matter if I'm dead. I love that. I, I absolutely. This is great. I love your dad. I love. <laughs> he's he's pretty cool, dude. <laughs> and he raised a pretty cool daughter, Khaki. Thank you so much. I enjoyed this conversation, and I, I, I'm sure other people did too because. There's a lot there again, there's emotion tied up with money. We are, we have money types. Um, people who are not great at money, growing money are frustrated and want to learn more because there's a lot of people out there that earn great livings and don't know how to multiply the money that they make. That's right. And Judith, one thing we didn't mention, and I'll just say this quickly, just because you have a money type of spending or saving, for example, does not mean that you cannot change your money type. There, you know, through coaching and through learning and understanding and through changing your your vision and changing your the lens that you consciously look through, you can you can make changes 
based on your goals and what you want to achieve. That's absolutely possible. So nice to hear. So nice to hear. So, you know, if you're saying to yourself, listen, I've always been horrible. These women can't teach me a thing. Not so true. As long as you're willing to learn, there are solutions out there. Khaki khaki Purdue is solutions based. (laughs) Thank you, you, Khaki. I really, really appreciate this. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. Um, and hope, hopefully we'll get to talk again in the near future. So take care. And everybody, thank you for listening. I hope this helped. If you're married to somebody who's being a bit like a Scrooge, you're going to have to use your, uh, your, your thinking cap and pull some information off this podcast to work around that. Uh, know where your line is to walk away. If you know anybody who would benefit from this discussion, if you have not yet subscribed, please do so. But above anything, have an amicable day. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Be good to yourselves, be kind to your spouse, and cherish your children above all else. 